There are certain people that when they pop up on your computer screen, it feels like home. It's like a warm oatmeal cookie. It's like a nice TV show. That, oh, Sanford and Son, it's a classic. That's how I feel seeing this man right now, Warren Sharp, the man, the myth, the legend. The book is done. His life has resumed. Are you happy it's done? I know you love doing it and you love talking about it, but I know you got to be thrilled it's over. I love the research. I love everything goes into it. It's it's hard work, but it's a lot of fun. But absolutely, once this thing is done, I get to share it with the world. That is what truly makes me the most happy because one of my goals is sharing information, educating people, and I enjoy doing that. So when it's out there in the public and I don't have to work on it anymore, it's like heaven. Um, we're gonna get into the book. Where can people get it? I stand by it. I have the PDF copy. I bought it. I, I'm just going through and I kind of like the PDF because I can just copy and paste into a Word document I have called Sharp Nuggets because you know I love that. But where can people go and get this? Uh, up at the website, sharpfootballanalysis.com, you can get the 363 page PDF. You know, in prior years, Adam, we were selling this book on Amazon. And I think there's some confusion with the people that had been used to buying it because we've sold it there since 2016 right. in a paper copy. But we got up to like around 250 pages the last two years prior to this. And we were making about 20 cents a copy and we had to sell the book for $30. I mean, that was the minimum list price Amazon allowed us to set for 200. And not only pages. that, you would always call me and you'd be like, Adam, it sucks because not only do I have to make it a certain price, but I have to like edit out a hundred pages because Amazon won't let me do more. Exactly. I mean, I had to go into it when I was writing for each team, knowing exactly how many lines of characters I was allowed to write up for each of these previews so that they could fit into the 250 page limit. And we got to a point this year where I wanted to include this heat map technology. Nobody else is really doing a lot with that right now, but I had developed it and I really thought it was going to be cool for visual learners, just really easily depict where the knowing like are. where the Eagles throw it at tight ends on the field or like, yeah, like where teams usually attack on the field. It's cool to look at it like that. Exactly. And I can segment it out, you know, whether they're in uh, in shotgun or under center or whether they're running hurry up or they're not running hurry up or whether he's like you said targeting a tight end or yeah, whether to he's me i love that as a fan because how many times do you watch a game when you're a fan and you're looking you're like man they always throw to there in that formation and now you can kind of check that out yeah and the other thing that we can also do with it is side by side look at efficiency so you can see where let's let's take for example um when he's taking a five-step drop where is the quarterback throwing it? And then where is he most efficient throwing it? So we got two visualizations side by side. So you can see, well, he throws short to the right, but he's really a lot better deep to the center of the field. You know, those types of things are, are evident. And then the other thing, like you said, is just the page length. It was ridiculous having to cut things. I wanted to write a lot more. So it ended up you being- got defense in this book. I'm getting to read about yeah. defense. And last year it was more, yeah, last year it was, it's more offensive based because that's where more of your analytics are. Um, and they kind of control the pace of the game. But now, you know, like I, I just reread the Eagles chapter today before we came on and, you know, to see the breakdown of the linebacking core and all that. I'm like, man, this is if, if you want to know about every team in the NFL, I, a lot of times I don't feel safe recommending things because I'll read up the blurb. I always use the Eagles as my test. And if they're okay. missing things, I go, I can't trust every team. This was so thorough that I know for someone that is going to 
dive in if this season happens, it hit on everything, man. You should be proud of it. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. So it, it, it was a lot longer. It was a lot more work, but um, it, there's a lot more there for people to read. And bottom line was, if we were selling this thing on Amazon in a printed copy, the minimum price they would allow us to set in order to even just put it in the store, the minimum price they would make us set was $45 and we would make like 10 cents off of that. So the, the economics just didn't make sense. So we've got it on PDF up at the website uh, and that's where people can get it this year. So it is different than last year, but I think you're going to be more happy with the final product here. Although we are getting a lot of people are like, man, I really want the book. I don't care how much it costs. I just want to buy the book. Uh, so we're, we are evaluating that to see if we should make an adjustment and, and throw it up there. But I'm just forewarning people who are interested in that. Right. It's not going to be, you know, $29, $30 like it was last year. Um, I, I love that you kind of do a state of the union address of football analytics in the beginning of your books. I love that you, uh, I think, was it Rich that wrote the thing uh, about using completion percent percentage over expected compared to completion percentage? Uh, that was Dan. That was Dan, Dan. Zuda. I thought yeah. Dan did a great job. Uh, yes. he, he had a few good nuggets for people. I, I thought even for me, reading something as simple as don't be afraid of QBR, I was like, because I, I, I never know which of the metrics. And I think it's so important. You harp on this all the time. It's one data point and you use it. But it's important to know which data points to use. And I thought that part of your book, I thought he did a great job. But I, I feel like every time in your State of the Unions, it's we're getting better but we're still not there yet. I feel like that's your main message when you talk about analytics use in the NFL. Yeah, and, and we are definitely uh, getting closer. There's more teams around the league that are taking this seriously. They're making smaller investments into bringing on analytics folks into their facilities um, to help analyze things. We're still not yet close to the point where the league overall is in as far of a direction shifted towards using proper analytics. Um, what do you to, see? Like, what do you see when you do research for a book like this that lets you know we're still not there yet, even though you're not in all of these organizations or know what they're working with? Yeah, I mean, okay, like, let's just take, for instance, Daniel Jones. Okay, Daniel Jones, when he was dropping back and using play action, um, when he was dropping back from under center using play action, um, he did that, I think, 55 snaps. Uh, he dropped back using – he was in shotgun using play action about 60 snaps. Night and day difference in terms of his efficiency, he was very poor when he was dropping back from center, turning his back on the defense, and then trying to face up to the field to throw the football, to retrack where his wide receivers were and to hit those targets. Very poor, but significantly better when he was just in shotgun doing play action and getting the ball out. And yet the team was basically 50-50 split. And if they had been looking at some of these numbers mm -hmm. along the way, they could have seen. You would see it trending really differently as the season was going on. Exactly. He's really bad turning his back to the defense doing play action, but we do want to incorporate some play action. So let's utilize a little bit more from the shotgun, but they weren't doing that. And they had a basically equivalent rates of shotgun versus under center play action over the course of the entire season. And that's just one example where teams, you can see that something very basic, just like, I mean, that is one of the most basic elements is like, let me, let me, let me chime in. I would say the opposite of that was your first chapter about the Cardinals where the Cardinals come out and the first few weeks, they're running all these sets. And you can see that Kingsbury went, this isn't working. You know, like you were saying in the red zone, they were using 25% 10 personnel. 
So four wide receivers in the red zone. The rest of the league was using 1%, and it didn't work. And then you were saying in your book that all of a sudden Kingsbury changed it up. And that's the, that's the, analy- the, the analysis that I like from you is I learn which coaches adapt well. Because when I'm, when I'm picking teams before the year or if I'm talking about a coach, to kind of know that they're able to shift mid – not every coach is able to do that. And that's, that's another thing I love taking from your book is which guys do adapt. Yeah, and that's one of the things I try to do. I mean, I'm, I'm not sitting here. What I try to do in anything that I publish on my website is not to give you the most obvious things that you can find at 25 other different websites. I'm not going to sit here and share the most basic information that you can find elsewhere. So I'm trying to dig into this a little bit and get into the mind of the coaches and what they're doing and was it efficient because people – the quicker people start analyzing coaches and their decisions, the faster they will be able to understand efficiency in the league. They'll be able to understand players because a player can only do as much as what the coach allows them to do. There are certain examples where guys break script and do things completely different. And two keys are Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes, right? These guys can make magic happen. That's very atypical. Most of the league you're hitched. The quarterback is hitched to his offensive coordinator slash play caller and the rest of the players are hitched to the quarterback you know he's as good as what his quarterback's going to deliver in many cases and there are again some exceptions like DeAndre Hopkins mm-hmm. having a ton of efficiency with some of the bad Houston Texans quarterbacks along the way but you're absolutely right the ability for coaches to adapt and adjust to make changes in season we saw that also in an early chapter in the book with Brian Dayball moving up to the booth, calling plays from the booth, using a lot more 11 personnel because they were having more success running the ball out of 11 personnel. These are like little things that you and I picked up while we were doing the show over the course of the season, Um, but not as many people were looking at it from that prism during the course of last year. So it's good to dive into some of this analysis. It's also also good when now it's July, and if you are someone that is interested in wagering during the season, that – People forget that what we see in those first four weeks, it is going to change. But some coaches are more capable of the change than other coaches. I'm curious, you dove into the season. Who were the coaches that really impressed you when you went back and looked? And who were some of the coaches that disappointed you that maybe you expected more or they didn't adapt? Do you have one maybe for each? Uh, Well, I'll go with Cliff Kingsbury and Kevin Stefanski as two guys that impressed me doing it different ways. Um, Cliff Kingsbury wanted to play from spread. As you mentioned, they had some injuries to wide receivers along the way. And and, and a bad O-line. And a coach could sit back. He's an air raid coach, played air raid quarterback, coached air raid in college, was hired to be an air raid coach in the NFL. He could have easily said, I don't have the right ingredients, like, right? Like a Bill Parcells thing. Like, I don't have the right ingredients here. Next wide receiver up, we're going to run my system. I want Kyler Murray to get used to my system. Even if we don't have the right guys, that's on the GM. We'll bring those in eventually. If we lose this year, we lose. But he didn't do that. He went ahead and changed. And obviously, what do we know from air raid is 10 personnel. That means zero tight ends. And what they ended up using was a lot of 12 personnel, which is two tight ends, completely different. You got two guys playing tight end as opposed to zero on the field. And that's how they were winning games in the earlier part of the season. That was great, showing a lot of adaptability. Yeah, I don't think people remember in the preseason last year where there was the whole scandal about whether Kyler could clap, remember, before the snap. And they're out there getting destroyed in preseason. And 
Yeah, to me, it was just – and then also to see that Max Williams was just rated the number one blocking tight end by PFF. Like, the fact that they were able to develop those guys gives me a lot of faith in that, in that play calling. And then when you couple that with Hopkins and Kingsbury and, and Kyler getting another year together, gives me a lot of hope for that team. It really does. Yeah, it does. I'm excited to see that. That's the and they mark played the Niners my- well both times. Yeah, they did. I mean, they, the, that was the mark of a coach who wants to win in the NFL. Like too many coaches, I think they all at the in their heart they want to win, but they don't know how to get that job done out on the field. But he showed that he could translate it from his heart to the field by actually adapting his philosophy to the strengths of his players. You say so Stefanski, and what what I love about you bringing up Stefanski is. So often in the NFL, however you end your last game, that's all people talk about. So for Stefanski to have this amazing year with Kirk Cousins and Dalvin Cook and Madison and all the wide receivers with an offensive line that has been kind of rough, and then they get steamrolled by an, a really phenomenal Niners defense, everybody was going, why isn't Salah getting a head coach instead of Stefanski? His offense stinks but it was a good year. So why were you impressed when you went back and looked at this season in total? Well, they were doing a lot of things that I find to be smart, which is, you know, look, Kirk Cousins is certainly being paid like the most upper echelon quarterback, one of them in the NFL, right? With his deal that he negotiated and all that guaranteed money. Right. Uh, But the reality is like, he is a type of quarterback who needs to be, who needs to have his hand held along the way. And Stefanski designed a very smart offense to do just that, to stay very balanced, to get a lot of um, impact out of these heavier sets where they could call some play action. They could bootleg him out of there. They could use some movement. Um, I really was impressed by some of the things that Stefanski did out of the heavier personnel. Um, And another guy that I want to mention, because there are some guys that go underlooked a little bit in the NFL and, great time on your show to talk about uh, Arthur Smith with the Tennessee Titans. I know Tennessee did well, but so much of that is actually being credited to the running back Derrick Henry, his performance. He obviously netted a really good contract in the off season as well as Ryan Tannehill, but Ryan Tannehill and um, Derrick Henry are not producing these types of seasons that they did last year and getting paid a boatload of money like they did. If it wasn't for what Arthur Smith was doing, Mm -hmm. they had some of the highest rate of pre-snap motion in the NFL. They had some of the highest rate of play action in the NFL. Um, And although they had a really good season, obviously made it to made it very far in the playoffs, upset the Baltimore Ravens. Um, I think his name is getting left out of the picture. He didn't get a HUD coaching job. Obviously Kevin Stefanski did going now to Cleveland Browns. Um, so I think Arthur Smith deserves a little I, bit. Of and you know what? Arthur was one of those guys where how many times last year would we come into the podcast studio and go, what a, what a lot of guts to do a, a, a fullback throw or a tight or like a defensive lineman. Like he always had a great trick play. And it fit Vrabel's mentality, which I go to two seasons ago in London when he tried to run Derrick Henry in, in for the touchdown and he went for it. Vrabel is aggressive. Arthur Smith, like, really accompanies that perfectly. With, with, with what you said, though, about Arthur, pre-snap motion and play action. This, to me, is the other Warren Sharp, 
pinnacle where I think the rest of the analytics world has caught on too, where you don't even need to run a lot in first quarter in order to do play action. And if you're not doing pre-snap motion, you're giving away free information. And so I'm curious who are on your Mount Rushmore of pre-snap play action play callers. I know I didn't tell you this one ahead of time, but who, who are the best at, at, at using this in which every offensive coordinator should be? Yeah, New England and the Baltimore Ravens, two teams that use a lot of pre-snap motion. Um, the New, I think New England is going to be very beneficial for Cam Newton to get that free information ahead of the snap. Um, so you know, Josh McDaniels up there in New England, they used a lot of pre-snap motion. And then Greg Roman with the Baltimore Ravens, again, helping Lamar out a little bit more, giving him that free glimpse of what the defense might be trying to do, uh, trying to isolate where the mismatches might be or what type of coverage is being played before you even have to snap the football. Valuable information. And I do think you're right that the analytics community um, is sort of catching on to this. But when, when people in the media you know, such as myself on your show or other shows are coming on and talking about the value of pre-snap motion. Like six years ago, five years ago, I mean, some teams were doing uh, pre-snap motion and there are some coaches that have used pre-snap motion for years, right? Like the Joe Gibbs offenses sure. and the Air Coriel offenses. Like these guys were using a lot of pre-snap motion, but I don't think it was easy to measure. I mean, Kyle, Kyle Shanahan and Reed do it every play, I feel like too. But wait, go back yes, to what you were Kyle, saying. Like, Kyle, it was never being measured before. I feel like your book might be the right. first time it's been measured. Yeah, we're, we're, we're now able to, use, through play charting data, be able to calculate you know, over the last several years how really impactful pre-snap motion is and how really impactful play action is. And these things were assumed to be impactful and beneficial before, um, but really being able to measure, you know, okay, well, on, even on run plays, how much more value does pre-snap motion add to kind of like Kyle Shanahan is one of the best at doing this on right. ahead of run plays to really kind of, it's just a shift in maybe the linebackers or one defender that now it improves the angles that your offensive line can take when they're going to block these guys in a zone blocking scheme, for example, that really benefits an offense like his. So there's just edges that um, like a if guy like I Kyle can force a defense to move in a direction in which I am not going to go. Like if you've ever played basketball and you've gone up against a zone, you do not beat a zone by dribbling. You beat a zone by passing. Because when you pass left and they shift left, now we have a decided advantage that if we can get it back to where we need to, they will not be in a position to defend us. And so who are the violators? Who are the coordinators that are not doing pre-snap, that are not doing play action, that you look at them and I know you want to tear them up in the book, but you go, I wish they would do it more. Yeah, I mean, as much as as much as I loved Brian Dayball uh, up in Buffalo with some of the things he did, they didn't use a whole lot of pre-snap motion. Um, so he was one guy. Look, there there are a number of guys out there that could definitely stand to. You took a deep breath because I know that you want to get somebody, but you're trying to be diplomatic. Well, okay, another guy that <laughs> I, I wrote I, I wrote about in the book a lot um, that I just did not understand what why they're doing this and they haven't done this a lot for years. Uh, but is Randy Fickner and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now it was just his first year there, but this is a team that uses the lowest amount of play action in the NFL. And when they do use play action, they don't perform 
all that well. So you could say the ends justify the means, like they're not going to do it if they're not that good at it. But the reality is, is that we know that play action works. We know that it is beneficial league-wide, regardless of the caliber of your quarterback. As such, if you're performing poorly using play action is because you're not doing it right. You're not using it in the most intelligent manner. You're not designing the smartest things off of it. So they weren't doing good. What's good play action and bad play action, like heavy set play action. Well, heavy set play action is a great time to utilize play action. Um, Early downs where the defense doesn't know what's coming and they might think it's more likely to be a run play, especially on first down, using some more play action. Just like the locations of where you're passing the ball off of play action. For example, if you're using play action and you're just throwing the ball out on a screen pass to the flat, it doesn't really do anything. The point of play action is to influence the linebackers, make them think like it's a run play. So why would you be going out there and targeting a, a DB who's already manned up on a wide receiver for just a screen pass, right? So that's a dumb pass off of play action is not really taking advantage of what the purpose of play action is so I think that they brought in Matt Canada and Matt Canada is the quarterback's coach this year now Randy Mm. Fickner used to be the quarterback's coach now he got moved that was my question for what you was is there like Big Ben seems like a kind of guy that's going to go out there and do whatever he wants and I feel like Fickner was expecting to go into the season and have that and then he had Dalvin Hodges and Mason Rudolph and I'm like maybe he he was like you know what I'll just work with Ben like but then you have to adjust and we didn't see the adjusting is what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. So either in in either case whether you've got Ben or you don't it's actually almost more important to use play action with the bad guys because with the bad quarterbacks, that benefit of making the defense guess when you're going to pass would raise their floor so much, but he wasn't using play action even with those guys. And I can understand, for example, like we just talked about um, with the New York Giants, if you find that those guys are bad using play action from under center, they're poor at turning their back on the defense, then use it more out of shotgun. Mm. Figure out ways to confuse the defense before the snap. And Randy Fickner was not doing that. In comes Matt Canada. Now, Matt Canada, like Mike Tomlin, when he hired Matt Canada, spoke about the fact that Matt Canada's got a lot of interesting ideas. He uses a lot more motions than what we were using previously. And he's excited. Mike Tomlin's excited for the influence of Matt Canada over the offense. But here is the the point of contention in my opinion and that is we may see something like what happened with the cleveland browns last year where you had a guy calling the plays in terms of their head coach you had an offensive coordinator in todd munkin and todd munkin was butting heads with freddie kitchens and then we heard a lot of like uh dirty laundry being aired at the end of the season about how you know todd munkin wasn't getting his his plays in there yeah, but don't you think wasn't... don't you think that fickner being an oc and not a head coach will allow that conversation to be a lot easier i've always thought when you're trying to be the head coach and the oc like uh what was his name what was the guy from the browns that got fired through one year freddie kitchens like do you think that that dynamic can make it because tomlin can come over the top and be like listen i don't give a crap what you're saying fickner we need to get more of this in there where if it's the head coach yeah yeah so i i write in the book that it's up to mike tomlin to get involved early in this process and make sure it works because, and make sure people know what their responsibilities are because Fickner could easily say, I don't want to do these things that are being suggested by the QB coach. And I've got the final say here in what this offense decides to do. And then the Matt Canada just is like sitting around kicking rocks, really upset 
that he can't get as much involvement. So it is absolutely up to Mike Tomlin to come in here and set the tone. Matt, you're going to be allowed to incorporate more of what you're doing. Randy, I want you to listen to Matt as it relates to motions and uh, you know play action and uh, the creative other play elements that he's going to bring to the table. Randy, you're going to call the plays, but I want this offense to be a combination of both of your guys' ideas. If that happens beforehand Oof. and that's clear in, in, um, in alignment, everybody's on the same page, I think it can absolutely work. But if, that's, if that is not made clear to those guys early on, um, I am worried that there could be a little bit of a contention there. I wish there was a way to analytically prove which coaches on staffs were most responsible for the success of a team. Like, if, like, I wish that was in every workplace, that we can look at the final project and look around and go, who helped this the most? Like, if there was a way, because the thing that kills me about coaching, it's, it's one, I love that you say Matt Canada's full name every time you talk about him. But also, like, I think about the, the, the new coach with the Eagles that's coming up, who the one that came up with uh, Philly Philly. Um, I can't remember his name. But you don't know who's responsible. And it, it all comes down to these beat reporters. And it's like, hey, man, this guy's up and coming. And it's all word of mouth. And I wish there was a way to, to really mathematically show who did what for an offense. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Look, it's, it's vital for that. Um, it was really a statement. I don't know if you, there's a comment after that. Well, uh, my comment is just that I agree with you, but it is very interesting that most teams do not really, you don't really know all the information. There's so much behind the scenes Ugh. that we don't know about these teams. Like literally a team could write a book about how the season unfolded with different coaches and decisions that were made and key inflection points and all these different types of things that, that I would find riveting. I would buy those books from all 32 teams right. every single year and watch those. Even when they do like the yearly re the annual recaps with regard to the NFL, you know, and some of the different teams, they never get into any of the coaching side of things, never. but it's such a massive influence over the team's final result. All they talk about is, you know, injuries or this guy was playing well or like a key play key moments in the season on the field but never really the coaching behind it and I find that type of information so fascinating and as I'm talking to certain teams I get a little bit of a sense as to you know how things are evolving but none of that makes it to light like none of it makes it to the light of day during the course of the season it's really interesting you were talking about Matt Canada and the new system that could come into Pittsburgh. And it made me think about in a normal year, introducing new things to a team is going to be an adjustment compared to teams that have consistency in this year where we're recording this on Monday, the 20th. And I don't feel confident hearing anything about the NFL right now. I read Peter King's article about how they're going to be handling things in the Vikings facility. Then I see the up and back between the players association, the NFL about, we don't want any preseason games. We want longer. I see the coordinated effort from the stars in the NFL on Sunday with Russell Wilson and JJ Watt and everybody saying we want to play. And you could tell right now that the entire players, I hear in the contract that there's no force majeure clause that if there is a pandemic, the players are sitting there going, we should still be getting paid because you didn't put that in the contract. The more and more I hear, Warren, the less and less I'm confident that the season is going to happen. So I'm curious. Let's say it does happen. 
And there's all this up in the air where I'm reading in the article, the offense and defense won't even be in the same room. They might have to do a Zoom call. How are you using all of this new, uncomfortable, and kind of weird information to impact how you're looking at the rest of the, of the season? How are you processing this? Well, a lot to unpack here. The first thing is, um, I haven't read all of Peter King's article, but actually this week, if you go down to point number nine and 10 things that I learned and you read point number nine in Peter King's article, he, he talks about your boy in there. So well, first, first time shout out compared me to dr z which is really humbling. no way yeah you yeah. got the dr z comparison yes it said that i was modern day um dr z so i, I hold on I tell me how that feels because you know like doc, everybody should know dr z was like the first one to create nfl blurbs the first one to that was like a non-football player that was like i like this guy and people valued it how does that make you feel uh you know, it's, it's very humbling. Uh, Dr. Z was an incredible analyst of the game, and he had so much um, sway over uh, what people thought about the game. He wrote columns in, what was it, Sports Illustrated for years yeah. and years. Uh, just a really influential guy, a guy who uh, had the universal respect, I think, of everybody, everybody. Uh, in the league who read his work. And I just felt, I, I mean, it's really – it's really an honor um, to be compared to that. So, That's so cool. You uh, should print it out. Put it in the man cave. Yeah, yeah. I'll do that right behind, right on the uh, on the wall over here, yeah, yeah. next to my kids, not next to the artwork that my kids draw for me uh, nice. every once in a while. But uh, no, I think the way that I have long looked at how this league was going to decide things, I thought for so long. A, I'll just backtrack a little bit. A, we have so much time, right? The pandemic is going on in March. I'm like, okay, thank God the NFL has all this time. And then yeah. it looks like we just burned through the clock, right? We just ran the clock down and they were trying to win the game in the final 60 seconds instead of taking advantage of it for the full 60 minutes. Um, but here we are, and we know that deadlines spur action. And we're coming up to some deadlines. And so I think this is really where the rubber will meet the road this next week. I'm not overly concerned that they're not going to agree to the things that they need to, because I really think that um, there's dragging feet probably on both sides. I mean, I'm frustrated with the NFL itself that they couldn't yeah. start being more proactive on this, but I'm guessing that on both sides, there's a, there's never like a blameless party in these types of things, completely right. blameless party. So I think there's a little bit of dragging feet on both sides, but I do think that they're going to come to some agreement such that it's not going to be a dispute as to why we don't start training camp on time. Now, this is just conjecture and theory, me speaking, just my opinion. I don't have any anybody telling me this, but I think that that's what's going to happen. But as it relates to the the point of your question, which yeah, is how is this – Yeah. Right. What are the ramifications of this? How is it going to play out um, on Sundays? You know, I think it's going to be a massive adjustment for every player on every team and especially the coaches. And what I do know is that question marks bring, bring along with them a lot of opportunities. Hey, for the team that's that what are I the like quickest, to hear. That are the quickest to figure out the right process, the right way to train my guys, the right way to uh, – So do you look at all the them? organizations? Because everybody kind of has like a – these are the or eight organizations that we think are like adults. And then like here are the eight that are like a waste of time. Are you going to go more towards the organizations you trust just naturally? Yeah, the organizations, number one, as you mentioned, and this is pretty evident to most people too, is, 
is the ones that have the most consistency, consistent coaches from the prior year, consistent quarterback, consistent scheme. Those are the things offensively and defensively that are going to have the the best owners um, that have shown that they're willing to spend money for their franchise versus others that don't do that. You know, like in NBA, I'm looking at the Mavericks or I look at Steve Ballmer at the Clippers. He got individual gyms for all of his players. Like you need an owner that'll do that. Not everyone will do that. Right. Exactly. I mean, we, we, we had our call. I don't know when the last time, maybe we did one in March before the draft. I can't remember the last time that I was on the show with you, but I was talking about the thought process of constructing bubbles beforehand and, yes. and building these bubbles and letting the guys go in there and, and uh, kind of be able to do their quarantines and then get ready for the season. And, uh, you know, different owners are going to approach things in different ways. I guess we got a glimpse into what the Minnesota Vikings were doing in Peter King's article. Wow. Um, so the- you said that in March and now we sit here and teams are asking players to report and you did all this thinking compared to what you thought of what did the nfl actually do i don't think they did anything it's so stupid to me that they were thinking that this was just i think that they thought this might get easier this might get less impactful this might get better by that time and having researched this whole thing to a very strong degree and understanding the number one factor with this is its contagiousness right like it's not getting cured you have to be quarantine the spread is so easy and then we in our country obviously didn't do a great job of isolating and we were getting frustrated with that and more and more people wanted to go out and do different things that it helped this thing not go away and the fact that the league just assumed everything was going to really die off and get better like I just didn't think that that was a reality back in March and so we needed to start preparing for it at that point in time so I just don't know where we sit from that perspective but i do know that with 32 teams some of which are going to have the same guidelines right the league's going to mandate their doctors are going to mandate and then the players associations doctors are going to have to like kind of agree to sign off i guess on some sort of a uh common way to get through some of these things but there's going to be a lot of opportunities elsewhere that each of the teams have their own abilities to influence what they're doing and how they're going to behave and how they're going to act and how they're going to recover how they're going to train how they're going to set up their facilities how they're going to set up their weight rooms how they're going to set up their medical rooms um, and and their treatment facilities and that sort of thing that i think some teams are definitely going to get a benefit from that, whereas other teams are going to be hindered by it. And it's going to create – we might see some teams that look a lot better on the field um, than others, like over the course of maybe not week one, week two, but over the course of the season, you're going to see some teams are, are perhaps um, doing their treatments and training and healing mm-hmm. guys a little bit better. I'm not about, talking about from the sickness. I'm talking about just in general practice, yeah. right? Like. The knees are tired, your legs are, your body's achy, all these different types of things. Some teams are going to be better off with better suited to help those guys and maintain health over the course of the long NFL season than other teams will be. And I think it's going the to more be structured something teams we're going to learn about because, a factor in later. Yeah, like these players are going to the training room thinking you can go in whenever and everything now has to be scheduled and regulated and cleaned and, and the timing. So that's the first person I thought about was Tom Brady is like coming from a place where everything he knows, every step would have been measured, and now going to Tampa, which has had constant issues over the last decade or two of like cleanliness and facilities. And I'm just wondering if, if he's going to look around and go, I, I, like, I need you guys to be on my crazy level. I can't be – like this is now a health and human safety thing. 
Um, because there's so much uncertainty, I, I do want to talk about some other stuff. I love regression to the mean. It's my favorite stuff because it's simple math and people look past it. I love that your book charts one score games. I love that your book charts turnovers. I love that your book charts injuries in an easy to understand way where I can look by position by position if my Eagles have been more or less injured compared to the rest of the league. Now, we can't assume it's going to bounce back, but if it's an extreme one year, we know that we can somewhat expect some regression. Those categories, one score game, turnovers, injuries, any, and can we start off and just kind of go, which ones jumped out to you the most? Um, well, you know, there's a number of them. The other thing that the book does talk about too is, is an interesting one that I started, is, or two interesting ones that I started putting in this year. One of which is field goal luck. And field goal luck is interesting. That's one of the last pages of the book uh, of each team chapter. That's because you can help your kicker do better in terms of field goals if you're kicking in closer. Uh, but sometimes you're stuck with like whatever kicker you have and however good your offense is. So that's going to affect your field goal kicker's ability to make field goals. We know field goal is just uh, determined based upon how far away it is. So the closer ones are going to be made at a higher rate. Um, but then you also have the opposing field goal kickers and you facing 16 kickers each season. And some of them are in division. So you might face the same guys, but others are just, you know, randomly showing up in your schedule, just like overall strength of schedule. And so some kickers you're going to face some years are making a high rate of field goals against you and you're having bad field goal luck and other seasons mm. that might regress more to the mean. So we're looking at field goal luck. And then we're also looking at when you talk about turnovers, the next layer is fumble luck. And that is, uh, you know, interceptions. We can, kind of assume that bad quarterbacks are going to throw more interceptions. Right. Bad quarterbacks might be losing games, losing teams fumble are more likely luck. to throw more that. interceptions. But fumble luck is interesting because anytime the ball is on the carpet, there is a traditional, we can look at regression there and look at what the expected rate of recovery is for an offense versus a defense. And then you can go back and look at, okay, when they were on offense, they had 20 balls that were on the carpet. How many of those did they recover versus what the NFL average is for offenses? And then when they were playing defense, you know, 25 balls were on the carpet. How many did they recover? Because the ball is just bouncing different ways. And it's very difficult to try to say, well, this team recovered X number of fumbles. So they're going to keep recovering it at that rate. So you can use that as a helpful way to try to mm. look at turnovers in that context. So we're looking at Field goal luck and fumble luck, which are two levels in addition to just general turnover luck, records in one score games, injury luck. Um, so all of these things like I'm breaking down in the book and, and I'm analyzing different things. I think one of the ones that's... And again, this is one data point. Just because a team had really bad fumble luck, don't be like, that's the reason they're going up. Yeah, and one of the interesting ones I just want to talk about for a minute is uh, the Miami Dolphins as it relates to their injury luck. Because on defense, they had the third most injured defense last year. Okay, Now, we know that the Miami Dolphins, they had a terrible year last year. They did not do very well, but they did better than some people were expecting them to do, at least based on I thought on they the were Vegas. a formidable team the last eight games of the year. Yes, at least according to the Vegas win totals. I mean, they rallied. They won five of these games, uh, five of their one-score games. Now, going five and two in one-score games is not ideal because basically you're showcasing that all you can do – I mean, they won five games overall, and all of them came by one score. So they, if they had a 
you know, out of seven games in one score, maybe they're three and four instead of five and two. Mm -hmm. Then they're only winning three games. So they ended up winning five games. But the fact is that their defense was very beat up. And I went back and I spent a lot of time. You know, we know that their head coach it comes from the defensive side of the football. And having spoken with him, I really like his philosophy. I really like him as a head coach in the league. Um, and it's going to take a little while for him to bring a system defensively to Miami. But one of the things that I felt Miami did last season was they said, we are not going to tank games. We don't love that karma that it might bring to us. But what we're going to do is we're not going to field the roster that's laid in full of talent. So we're going to be up against it every single game because we don't have as much talent as these other teams. We're still going to try to win these games, but with less talent, it's going to be difficult for us to do so. The great thing for them is they still were able to get Tua without even moving up in the draft. And if they love Tua all along, which I'm sure they did every single team entering the 2019 NFL season, or sorry, the college season before the week one's game was played, Tua was forecast to be the number one overall quarterback. Guys didn't know that Joe Burrow was going to go nuts yeah. last season. So um, I think they were perfectly fine with taking Tua where they ended up taking him but digging more onto that defensive side of the football this team was playing and I go into this in the chapter so many games with backups so many games with rookies so many games with low paid defensive players that it was a wonder they were even able to win five games this offseason spend some time reading to the fans out there reading what this team added on the defensive side of the ball how many veterans they brought in how many guys they added through free agency and trades that yep. they brought in on that defensive side of the football to really help this defense come together i think you're going to see a night and day i'm not forecasting them to be as good as the buffalo bills and sean mcdermott's defense right but this defense is not going to look anything close to what they did last season now is the caveat that we'll bring in a lot of new pieces and make yeah. a lot of change in this season where it's tough to do that however i will just say that across the board the talent that is there the veterans that are there much much different than what this defense had last year and don't be surprised if maybe they don't start off brilliantly but they will end up looking a lot better over the like second, their, third, and fourth months of the season. What's their team total? Uh, I think it's down at four and a half. Let me see. Five. Let me that see. Sounds pretty good. No, actually their win total, their win total is six. I'm oh. seeing. And, uh, but I'm still not in love with their offense, but this is not a team that I would be taking the under on. No. I think there's too many question marks. Have you already put some season long bets in? I have not yet. I have not. Wow. Um, I'm being, I figured I'm being, you would before the book came out. Well, typically I do. Typically I do. But one of the things that I'm trying to get a little bit better handle on is what the season is going to look like and then what my strategy is going to be for betting these teams. Because, for example, betting pure win totals can easily get scratched if the season is delayed. Those bets aren't even going to be – those bets are going to be refunded. However – Division win bets may not be. Mm. Super Bowl futures may not be. So these types like we're of seeing with the NBA, like, they're announcing the MVP, and they and the you know what I mean, like that. Those are season long bets that, like, if you bet on Rookie of the Year and you bet on Ja Morant, and you were like, man, if Zion plays, and now they're not counting it, it's over. You got it right, exactly. And so on the on the the the, the chance that there's more opportunities to keep these bets 
um, in the tank if the season starts a little bit later. I'm going to care more about division futures, odds to make the playoffs. You know, we got seven teams making mm. the playoffs in each conference instead of six. So we got odds to make the playoffs, division futures, um, some of those MVPs, some of the Super Bowl futures, as opposed to pure win totals. Now, I do believe in my heart that we do start the season on time. The bigger question that I'm hearing from a lot of people um, inside the NFL is they're not concerned with starting on time as much as they are finishing the season and having issues along the way and the season ends early. In that case, everything gets refunded. I mean, these aren't going to count. So I'm not spending quite as much. Obviously, I spent a ton of time researching, but I'm actually not spending as much time finding season-long win opportunities and trying to race to bet those this year as I've done in the past, just as a result of the uncertainty. Got one last question for you. I know that you know that I have become obsessed with sports cards. Um, and I, the reason I'm fascinated from a football perspective is the big focus is on quarterbacks. And if you and me would have invested in Lamar Jackson last year, yeah. I would have a beach. I would have palm trees behind me, buddy. We would have palm trees. You know, we were looking at like Lamar for, and I, I loved, I actually listened to your pod with Gary. Um, great pod. Great job, by oh, the way. Love man. what you're doing in the, in the sports card world. Um, but like, you're right. If you you could bet on somebody from an MVP or you can buy their cards, right. And there's a different type of enjoyment that get, gets out of that. I, I think, I think you're, you're onto something with that. So, what I'm realizing is the NFL, it's all about the quarterback. And so what happens is this is the investment stage into the second year quarterbacks. One thing that I learned from your book was how much quarterbacks improve going into their second year. And what we learned last year is it's not all of them. You know, when you're going to have the Lamars, you're also going to have the Bakers. You know, when you have the Josh Allens, you're also going to have the Sam Darnolds. Not all of them are going to go up, but when they do go up, like we saw with Carson Wentz in his second year, they can explode. And we, we sometimes over-dissect over a rookie year of a quarterback. There's a lot of interesting second-year quarterbacks this year that people in the card market are really investing in. So I'm just going to kind of give the prices, and I, I kind of want you to know where do you see gaps that, that you go, maybe that's too big. Kyler's leading the pack. His base prism, PSA 10, is at 407. I'm going to use that distinction for all of them. He's at 407. Next is Drew Locke at 336. Next then is Daniel Jones down at 162. So you see there that Kyler is in that premier stage. Drew Locke is seen as the number two. And then it's Daniel Jones at 162, Stidham at 144, and he's gone down since Cam Newton got there. Gardner Minshew at 125. And then at the bottom is Dwayne Haskins at 98. And I'm, I'm not asking you to predict, but I'm curious when you hear those values, what sticks out to you? Well, what sticks out to me not having the background in the card market is that I don't know what there, what value there is in Kyler Murray right now. Obviously um, I think that he's going to look, good this season because I like his coach. He's got more weapons there. So he's, he should have a good season. Um, how much more is left uh, for that card to go up? You know, that's, that's not for me to judge. Right. I don't know, but I do think he's going to have a good season, but that's a really high, high card. It's almost as if like everybody's talking about Kyler Murray and yes. 
I, I think you want to find the guys that not everybody's talking about, just like we relate it to sports betting. You don't want to be going after if there's one underdog that everybody's talking, everybody's on this team and the line is just sitting there at plus three and it really hasn't moved all week. And you know that like 65% of the action is on this dog. The, the one dog that everybody who picks favorites is deciding to pick this week is that team. You don't want to go near that team. And I'm not suggesting that he's like a smelly underdog right now, like that you don't but want to But I think that's a great them. perspective to take from the betting landscape to the sports card landscape. Right. So you want to go for other guys. Now I'm looking at what you say about Drew Locke and how close he is to Kyler and how far above these other guys. I write a lot about in the book. You know, I went into looking at the Denver Broncos this past off season, knowing what Locke did down the stretch thinking, man, this was pretty impressive. I I'm going to probably come away being on the Locke bandwagon. And actually I found myself the opposite, mm. um, having more concerns about Locke and his game, his ability to throw deep. Now, I know that they loaded up on some talent at wide receiver, which definitely helps, um, but they have a new offense coordinator coming in this year. Their defense is, has some more question marks. I don't know that I'm on the Drew Locke bandwagon, and you know, I don't know what it takes to make cards move in terms of value. I don't know if it's just, well, the quarterback looks good, but if he's still on a 3-13 and 13 team, not suggesting that's what Denver is going to be, and they're not performing well overall, then how much higher is this guy going – how much higher is this card right. going to get? Um, of the guys that are on the lower end of the spectrum, the guy that I think has by far of all, all those guys as you mentioned, the most upside is the guy viewed as the ugly duckling at the very end of the list is Dwayne Haskins at, what do you say, 92 or $98? 98. Um, yeah, everybody else is, th is three figures. He's a 98. So – for a prison if you read PSA the chapter on the Washington franchise and you see what I wrote about the Washington franchise this offseason and the way that Jay Gruden worked his quarterbacks into the mix and where they ended up slotting this guy, I thought it was a total disservice to sticking him. Gruden knew that this guy was not ready to play in the NFL. They had a solid backup quarterback in Colt McCoy yep. who has played in the offense before. And yet on game days, instead of making, because you're usually only going to have two quarterbacks active, instead of making Dwayne Haskins inactive and putting Colt McCoy as the number two quarterback up, they kept putting Dwayne Haskins as the number two guy, making Colt McCoy inactive, such that when Case Keenum would get injured because the O-line was terrible and Trent Williams wasn't playing and they were getting sacked a lot, next guy up. Dwayne Haskins, how are you going to welcome in your rookie quarterback to his first experience? He doesn't get a full week of reps. Mm. Uh, he's not the projected starter. He's just getting inserted at the last minute in because your starter gets injured. Your offensive line is getting beat up that game. All of a sudden, you expect him to go in there and have a good experience. Not the case whatsoever. That happened multiple times with Dwayne Haskins in terms of a couple of games where he got action. And finally, they ended up starting him later on in the season. I think this coaching staff with Ron Rivera, Scott Turner, going to get much hot, get him much better prepared for this season, a lot better experience in year two. Um, and so I think this is going to be a, it's going to make him look a lot better than what he looked like last season with that lame duck interim head coach when he was actually starting games and offensive coordinator. Um, they've got better talent at the running back and receiver positions. I think they're going to utilize their backs out of the backfield a little bit better. Remember Scott Turner worked a lot with yeah. 
Uh, Christian McCaffrey, they threw the ball a lot to the running backs. I was super impressed by the way Cam Newton looked in his first year with the Turner offense, Norv and his son Scott down in Carolina in 2018. And a marriage I didn't think was going to work out worked out a lot better than I ever expected it to. I think Haskins is going to look better than what he's looked last season. I think a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth from his performance last year. I expect him to do a lot better this season. That being said, how good is how good is the Washington franchise going to be this season? Right. How because that how, offensive line is still an issue. Yes, it is. And how many wins are they going to get? And so that's going to play a factor. I'm who sure do you have other than Terry McLaurin? Yeah, it's. I, I like uh, Golden Gandy that they brought in. I like the uh, running back out of Memphis. I think he's yeah, going too. to be a guy that they can line up into the Gibson. slot and do a lot of other things with. So I think I, I like a couple of their skill positions. But you're right. Overall, very difficult division and a team that doesn't have a plethora of talent. It, I, I will say, as I've thought about, and we're going to wrap up now, the, the last three years of the draft have really been special other than a few, you know, other than Trubisky, like Mahomes-Watson in 2017, 2018, I still have faith in all those guys. I still have faith in Baker and Sam. I, I think Lamar and Josh Allen showed us a lot. Josh Rosen, I feel like, is the one that kind of slipped through the cracks there, but as I look through these six names of quarterbacks from last year that were rookie, I have a lot of faith in Kyler. I think Daniel Jones, look, I still believe in what my man Chris Sims said, and he was a hater of Daniel Jones. And the fact that he's completely flipped on him means a lot to me. I know when he does that. He always had faith in Drew Locke. I think Gardner Minshew showed some great flashes. Talk about getting thrown into a situation where you were expecting nothing as a sixth or fifth round pick. And I am hearing things right now about Stidham that don't make me think that it's definitely Cam Newton right now. And so uh, with Haskins and, and kind of the situation there, all of Washington, I feel like I'm just kind of staying away from because I have no idea. But, like, that's five, nine, that's 11 new quarterbacks in a league that two years ago we were going, Big Ben Breeze, Eli Rivers, they're all leaving. What are we going to do? And I feel like we have 11 quarterbacks now in the NFL that – from a sports car perspective, but also as a enjoyment of watching football, I'm excited to watch these guys play. I think they're all talented. And especially if these OCs advance the oh, way that yeah. they're calling games and do more of the intelligent things that we're finding out, it makes quarterbacks who might be marginal look better. And it does absolutely produce better on-field product for us, increase the enjoyment as fans. And I think it will probably factor into uh, your trading card game that you're getting into as well sharpfootball.com sharpfootballanalysis.com sharpfootballanalysis.com the book uh it is out download the pdf it is jam-packed there is so much information that we can't get to all of it but you are undoubtedly going to see warren on every major national broadcast whether it's colin cowherd or ever he's getting compared to dr z i am so proud that everyone is recognizing what you're doing because I know that you would do this regardless. And so I love when you get your shine. I am so happy to talk to you. I miss you uncontrollably. Warren Sharp, you're the man. I appreciate you, Adam. Love doing your show. This does feel like home. Just uh, yeah. coming on here and talking with you. Such a great atmosphere. Uh, really happy to be here with you, buddy. Keep kicking ass. Uh, for Warren Sharp, I am the L-E-F-K-O-E man. Hit him up also on all social media at Sharp Football. Holla, holla, holla.